Do you ever just think, man, I need God to do something in my life that's significant? I need wisdom. I need help. Well, welcome in. What is wisdom? When do we need it? How do we get it? And what is wisdom's ultimate purpose? Welcome to the Deep Dive Kings of Compromise Part 4. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we are going verse by verse through this incredible book of 1 Kings, and we will get to 2 Kings as well, but we're only three chapters into 1 Kings, and so we're going to go right to the Insta Bible to show you. Open up your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 3. My name is Tim. Welcome to Tim Hatch Live on the channel where we talk about social issues and news last night on Tuesday and tonight, the Bible on Wednesday. Give me a like, a subscribe, a share, Anything that you feel comfortable doing, I would appreciate. It is part four of Kings of Compromise, like I said, chapter three of First Kings. And then I also ask for, again, like, share, subscribe. So as we do on this show every week, I love doing this. I hope you appreciate it, but I love just studying the Word of God book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Solomon has fortified his kingdom. He is now on the throne of Israel, and there are no uh, rivals, okay? So that was last week's talk. He literally eliminated all the potential rivals, Joab, Adonijah, his brother, um, uh, Shimei, the former alliance, uh, the, the one with an allegiance to Saul's kingdom. And now we're going to turn a page. We're going to one of the most precious passages when it comes to wisdom in the Bible. This is the place, this is it, where Solomon is given the blank check moment from God in a dream. That moment where we all, that moment where we all want from God, that where God would say, ask what you wish and I'll give it to you. Don't, don't you want that from God? I would love that moment from God. So we're going to go through the text and we're going to talk about what this passage, what this entire chapter really has to say about wisdom. Let's go. Okay, so here's what it says right from the beginning. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house. And then it says this, and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Okay, let's talk about this passage first. What we're seeing here is how Solomon is still in the mindset of, let me make my kingdom secure. Let me do the things that make sense intellectually to establish myself as a king of a sovereign nation, the nation of Israel. So what does he do? Right here it says it again. He marries Pharaoh's daughter. Look what it says a little bit later in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only. And there's some passages, uh, translations that say, except watch out for your onlys when it comes to loving the Lord. Because this, this little exception here is going to come back to haunt both Solomon and Israel. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to give me to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar 
at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And let's stop there for a second. Okay, so here's, here's where we are. Solomon is doing a couple things um, right. Number one, he's loving the Lord. Number two, he is sacrificing to the Lord. He is giving his all to the Lord. I mean, a sacrifice of a thousand burnt offerings is, is significant no matter who you are. Even the very rich Solomon is making sure that God comes first in his life. Um, he's walking the statutes, for the most part, he's walking the statutes of David, his father only. So there's an only in his life. There's an only in everybody's life. Isn't there an only in your life? There's an only in my life. I'm sure there's something in your life that you say, man, that God is still working this thing out in my life. I still need a lot of change in this area. We all do, right? So he's got some things that he's doing right, but at the same time, he's doing some things that are really mischievous. He is intermarrying with women from other nations. He is seeking to establish himself through marital alliances. This is a very common practice in the ancient world. This is how men secured their place in history. They would marry the daughters of foreign kings so that the foreign king would invade his nation. And that's exactly what Solomon's doing. So he's thinking naturally, right? He's thinking, this is how I keep myself strong. Then he's also making offerings and sacrificing to uh, God, but he's doing so at the high places. Let me tell you why this is a problematic passage here in 1 Kings chapter 3. And the reason why is because God made clear, okay, this is in um, Numbers 33, 52, that the Israelites were supposed to go into the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, and annihilate all the other nations and tear down their altars and their high places. And that there would be only one place where you would sacrifice to the Lord your God. That would be in Jerusalem where the Lord chose to put his name on the holy mountain. Now, that, that place is still heralded and hallowed by the Jews to this day. If you go to Israel, you will see the Wailing Wall. That is the last remaining remnants of the Jewish temple where they worshiped God. And the altar was placed and the ark was placed in the times of Sil uh, Solomon, in the times of all the kings of Israel, uh, right up until the time of Jesus when Herod the Great had remade or rebuilt the temple. So there was one place in ancient Israel where all of the people of God were supposed to come and worship. Why is that significant? Because it is a picture for us of Jesus. Jesus Christ will come and say, I am the way, the one way. He also, he also will say, there is a narrow gate. Make sure that you walk through the one narrow gate in order to attain life, because many will go the wide road that leads to destruction. So Jesus comes and he says, listen, listen, I am the one way. <clears throat> now, we are living, <clears throat> excuse me, we are living in a culture where a lot of people want to embrace many ways. I heard a statistic the other day that was alarming to me. Even most, the majority of professing evangelical Christians, that would be Christians that believe the Bible is true. Even the majority of evangelical Christians believe that there are many ways to God and that God will honor the worship of other religions. Now, that is not biblical, <laughs> which is kind of ironic since evangelicals ascribe to believing that the Bible is true and then they don't believe what the Bible actually says. Anyway, we live in a culture where a lot of people want to have this, you know, options to get to God. So God will be fair. He'll give those, um, the people that don't know how to worship God or that they worship God in their own way, <clears throat> might be the Islamic way, might be the Hindu way, might be the Buddhist way. But, you know, sincerity is what counts. <laughs> you could be sincerely wrong, friend. And so the, the Old Testament provides us a picture of Jesus being the one way by saying to Israel, 
that this is the one place where you will sacrifice. You will not sacrifice on any high hill. You will not sacrifice on the high places of these foreign nations. In fact, you will tear down their altars because there is one way to approach God. He will make the way. He will provide a place. He will provide the sacrifice ultimately. And all that is pointing to Jesus, who is the final sacrifice and the one way to God. So this is important because what you have here in Solomon is a man who represents many of us, many of you. He's doing some things right, but he's doing some things wrong. And he loves the Lord. That's, that's probably you. You're probably not tuning into this channel right now if you don't love the Lord. You're probably not into Bible study if you don't love the Lord. So Solomon is a lot like us. He, he loves the Lord. Okay, back to the Bible. He loves the Lord, but there's a couple of things that he's doing that are natural, that are self-serving, that are fleshly. He's intermarrying with foreign nations. He's sacrificing in the high places. You know who Solomon is? He's like you. He's like me. He's a guy who has to work things out with God. <clears throat> But it is in the process, in the time of his life, where he is, that God meets him. He's sacrificing a thousand burnt offerings and God shows up. What a beautiful moment, right? Ask what I shall give you. This is all in a dream, but God says, ask what I shall give you. Beautiful moment. And it just kind of shows us something that's powerful about our God. And I want you to hear me say this very clearly. God meets us where we are, not where he expects us to be. You are a flawed Christian. You are a flawed person. I am too. Listen, the hope of our faith is that God is here to help flawed people. <laughs> that, is the, that is the great hope of our faith. That's why I love doing what I do, because what I do is ultimately here, and I pray that it is helpful to people who know they're flawed, who know that they don't match up to the standard of Jesus, the standard of scripture. We're all in that boat. And what I love about 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, is that God meets Solomon where he is. He loves the Lord, but he's got issues. And, and that's hope for every single one of you. If you love the Lord and yet you've got issues, can I tell you that God wants to meet you right where you are? And he wants you to ask for things. Ask, like God shows up. He doesn't say, hey, cut it out. He says, ask what I shall give you. And it's a beautiful moment and it's a precious picture of how the Lord deals with his flawed people. Thank God for that. I don't know about you, but that just really brings joy to my heart. Verse six, it says, and Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. Okay, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, this is a picture of how prayer should go in our lives. When you are in conversation with God, can you first acknowledge who he is and what he's done? Prayer should not be bullet listing what you need from God. Prayer should first be you acknowledge who God is. You know who he is. You see him for who he is. You love him for who he is. And you are thankful for that. When we enter God's presence, even the, the book of Psalms says this on a regular basis, we enter God's presence with worship, with praise, with thanksgiving, right? Enter his course with praises. Enter his gates with praises. Enter his course with thanksgiving in our hearts. So we don't enter into prayer just saying, God, I'm so help needful. Help me. Please do this, do that, do this. Stop. Acknowledge first and foremost who he is. Even the model prayer of Jesus, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of those lines, that's half the prayer. And all of those lines are acknowledging who God is, where God is, and that our lives are here for his glory. 
Solomon does this beautifully in this chapter. You have done these things. You have shown great and steadfast love. You have kept for him this steadfast love. You have given him a son. God, you are who has made me who I am. And great prayer always starts with who God is, not where we are, because so much of our prayers are fixated on what's wrong with us instead of what's true about God who is for us. Don't you see how beautiful it is to sit back and say, wait a second, I know there's some things that I've got that are going on in my life that I don't like, but first, let me acknowledge that God is in charge, that God is in control, and and as Solomon does here, it's beautiful because if we go back, he's, he's basically saying, I am who I am, and I am where I am, God because of you. And the, and the word that he uses, steadfast love, chesed in Hebrew, steadfast love, verse six, verse, uh, verse six twice, because he's saying it's your loyal love, chesed, loyal love, your loving kindness that has got me where I am. When you approach God in prayer, when you approach God in worship, when you approach God at all, start there. Start by acknowledging that he has got you where you are. He brought you to where you are. He's He's not going to leave you where you are. That, to me, is the most profound point of this pattern of prayer in Solomon's life. Verse 7, he says this, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although, and I love this line, I am a little child. He says, I don't know how to go out or come in. Let's stop there because I want you to understand that Solomon is not saying that he has a problem with door handles. <laughs> he is not saying, God, I, I thank you for everything you've done, but I can't get out of the house because I don't know how to come in or go out. <laughs> no. What is he saying? This is a euphemism. It's used all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch. And it's a euphemism for leading God's people in war and in administration. It is a, it is a, uh, a phrase. It is a, again, I go back to that word euphemism for administrating God's kingdom. God, I don't know how to lead these people. I don't know how to do that. I'm young. I'm inexperienced. David, my father, he was a warrior. He's been doing this for years. I'm brand new. I just got to the place where I am. And I'm a little child. And by the way, he's not absolutely a child. The commentators believe he's about 20 years old. He already has a son of his own. Rehoboam is born before his first year of ruling in the kingdom. So He's a grown man in some sense, but he's a little child in his understanding of how to lead God's people. Then look at verse 8. It says this, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So right there he's acknowledging, first of all, I am not my own. I'm not just sitting here on the throne in this important position, but I'm over your people, your chosen people, the people that you have multiplied, the people that you have created. Can I tell you that great prayer starts with understanding where you are in the greater picture of God's purposes? Great prayer acknowledges that you are part of what God is doing, not the main event of what God is doing. Again, I bring you back. We talked about this, I think, two weeks ago or two episodes ago on the deep dive, which is the very first word of the Lord's Prayer is probably the most important word of the Lord's Prayer, our. Okay, so when I, talk, when I approach God, I, gotta, I have to do this. I have to approach God. Understanding that I am part of a family, I am not an only child, right? He is, he's, his eyes on a lot of other people. 
And so sometimes when he says no to my prayers, it's because he has to orchestrate some things for other people. And sometimes when he says yes to my prayers, it's not just for me either. It's for everybody around me that it will affect and it will bless. But, but here what Solomon is doing is he's modeling for his great prayer that acknowledges that we are where we are around the people around whom we are around. And, and in that situation, we need... And look at what Solomon says in verse 9. We need an understanding mind. So verse 9, this is so important. Please don't miss this passage because something popped out to me that I never saw before in this chapter. And I have preached on this chapter several times and I have read this chapter several times. I never saw this. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people? I want you to notice something. Did you see what I saw? Solomon never says the word wisdom. He, he doesn't say it. It's not in the text. Go, look at it again. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. I need you to open my mind. And I need you to help me discern between good and evil. Now, is he asking for wisdom? Yes, but he never says the word wisdom. What I believe and what I believe the Lord showed me in this text is that God is giving us in verse nine, a definition of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is, let's go back to it again, an understanding mind from God. You don't have wisdom if you don't let God open your mind to lead, okay, to lead others, to lead yourself and to discern between good and evil. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing the difference between good and evil when both, but when both options look good, knowing the difference that one of them is evil, you don't see it yet, you will see it later. And secondly, it's having an open mind to God's voice. And I, that is throughout the book of Proverbs, throughout the book of Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We get wisdom from God. Wisdom comes down from God. He gives wisdom, James chapter five, 1, verse 5, without reproach. Only God is the source of wisdom. So therefore, to be a person who is receptive to wisdom and receives wisdom is to be a person with an open mind to God and discerning good and evil. And I, there's another translation, the message translation of verse 9, where Solomon it puts it like this. Give me a God-listening heart. I love that line. Give me a God-listening heart. That's the ultimate definition of wisdom. I want to listen to God. My ears need to be open to you. And it's just a beautiful story. It's just a beautiful definition. I think a beautiful moment. So verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise. Now, God mentions wisdom here. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. In other words, you're going to be one of a kind. Verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare, shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is a beautiful moment as well, because what you see here is God is pleased by the prayers of Solomon. And why is God pleased? Because Solomon's prayer for wisdom was not ultimately about Solomon. 
See all the things that God mentions here? You didn't ask for the death of your enemies. You didn't ask for long life or riches. Those are self-serving desires from God. Those are self-serving, individual desires. I want, I want, I want. Solomon says, no, I ask for this, that I might lead your great people, that I might do what you want me to do, where you want me to be, with whom you have surrounded me. This is the prayer of Solomon that pleases God. Now, let me boil this down for you. And we're not even going to talk about a section, but we can talk about it right now because I don't know if I'll touch on it later. Your prayers will please God to the extent that you understand that your life is here for God to do something through you and not just for you. Great prayers ask for God to bless them so that others might be blessed through them. I want wisdom, and I pray for wisdom all the time, but I pray for wisdom that I might lead this Bible study with you. I pray God will speak to my heart that I might help God's people grow up in him. What does, what does Paul ask for in prayer so many times? From the Colossians, pray that words may be given to me, that I might speak and declare the glories of God, right? He's asking for people to pray for him that he might bless other people with truth in his preaching. Let me give you a hot tip right where you are right now. Maybe you need to pause this episode on your smartphone or your device, whatever you're watching, and just say a sm short prayer, identifying where you are, who's around you, or who will be around you tomorrow, and say a prayer, God, help me to live wisely before that person so that I might lead them toward you. Tomorrow, they might not say the sinner's prayer and make a confession of faith and get baptized, but tomorrow I want to be an agent that leads them closer to you. Help me to live wisely. Now, that includes with my money, with my family, with my spouse, with my children. I want wisdom for the people that are around me that my life might direct, might whet someone's appetite for the goodness of Jesus Christ. That is a powerful prayer, and I guarantee you that God is interested in answering that prayer for every single one of you. And I know it because this is how God responds to, to Solomon. He says, now, because you didn't ask me for things, but for purposes, my purposes to be accomplished in you and through you for others, I'm going to give you the things too. This is a beautiful moment. I'm going to give you the things that you didn't ask for because you asked to be an instrument through whom I could touch and change other people's lives. And I would like to say that that absolutely does work in the economy of God. Please don't ask for wisdom so that you can get the other stuff, but at the same time, ask for wisdom so that your life can be blessed because I believe that the Lord adds a blessing to people's lives financially and materially when they aren't obsessed with the financial and material parts of their lives. When they see themselves as part of a bigger picture of the world, part of a community, part of a society, part of a neighborhood, nation, whatever, a company, and you say, wait, let me first ask God, how can I benefit these people around me in a way that brings them closer to God, brings them closer to Jesus, brings them wisdom so that all people might flourish? And I believe God honors that with blessing, with riches. Some of the richest people I know are people who know how to use their money to bless the kingdom of God. And uh, they are some of my closest friends as well because they have been such a financial benefit to our church in its mission to reach others with the gospel. But these people made a decision long ago with their business, with their income. God, this is yours, it's not mine. 
So I'm asking you for wisdom on how to handle this money to bring people close to you. So they tithe. That means they bring one-tenth of their income to the house of God where they are fed the word of God and their lives are blessed and they gain wisdom through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. Okay, you don't tithe to a church that you don't go to. I don't understand. People do that. You don't do that. So you tithe and you give your money to God's kingdom and they and I've seen people do this. And then God just pours out blessing and prosperity on their lives and multiplies their efforts. And some of you business owners and some of you leaders in, in industry need to lean in here because if you're not yet honoring God with a tithe, it's probably because you have justified it through some kind of biblical meandering, <laughs> gerrymandering of scriptures, or you don't think you can do it, or you don't yet see how God is the one who is absolutely behind all of the opportunities that you will ever be given and all of the responsibilities that you will ever be trusted with. And that there are doors that are waiting to be opened for you that will not be opened until you say, wait a second, not just in my theory, but in my practicality, God, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to see money, not as a thing to enrich my life, but as a tool to bless your kingdom and see people reached for Christ. So... This is how Solomon prays. This is how I would encourage all of us to pray. And this is what happens in the, as a result. Verse 15, and Solomon awoke, okay, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. So right away, he's already acting as a selfless individual here. And, and also, did you notice that he actually comes to Jerusalem and stands before the ark? Remember how this chapter opened. He's making offerings at the high places. He's in Gibeon. That's not where God wanted to put his name. His name was supposed to be and is in Jerusalem by this time. And now having heard from God and received wisdom, the first response of his wisdom is offering up burnt offerings the proper way, peace offerings and making a feast, giving himself fully to God and to others to bless their lives. This is how the story opens up with, with regard to Solomon's wisdom, but we're not done yet because as we're going to see right now, uh, we move from Solomon's request and the request being answered to the first experience that he has, the first opportunity he has to express the wisdom that he's received from God. And who shows up? Because this is big because it's not to be missed, but the scripture is very clear that in verse 16, Having received wisdom, the very first people that approach Solomon in need of his wisdom are two prostitutes. Verse 16, then two prostitutes came to the king. Then, after he received wisdom, two prostitutes come to him. And they stood before him. Okay, stop there. Prostitutes are meeting with Solomon. Solomon is the king of Israel. And his audience that day are two women of the street, women of the night, red light district people. What is it telling us? It's telling us this. Never judge your opportunity to serve by the people God puts in front of you to serve. Never wait for the important people to come around before you will do your best with the wisdom God gives you. Serve the ones the Lord sends to you. By the way, who will love the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the fornicators when he shows up and who is also the son of, of Solomon, the true son of David? Jesus. So Solomon models here a pre-incarnate vision of what Jesus is going to be like. With the wisdom of God, he comes and serves the lowly. He comes for the sick, 
the, the unhinged, the people who are broken by sin and their sinfulness. He came for those who needed a doctor. That's what wisdom is for. It's for people whose lives are not together. Yours and everybody around you. So here's what he says. Oh, so here's how the story goes. Verse 17, the one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this one also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at my breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Okay, so here's what we're supposed to see right here. We're supposed to see the fact that, that Solomon is presented with a choice. And both choices look the same. And this is where we meet opportunities for wisdom. You don't need wisdom when, when, when things are clear, right? You, you don't need wisdom when your child is uh, about to um, run into the street. You don't need to say, God, should I chase the child or should I? No, no, it's very clear. The choice is clear. Chase the child down, save him. You don't need wisdom when you're deciding between dating a believer or an unbeliever. The choice is clear. You don't date, if you're a single Christian, you don't date unbelievers. You don't have fellowship in those close-knit proximities with unbelievers. They will cause you untold grief. So there are clear moments where you don't need wisdom. You just need instruction. You just need to know what God's word says about something. But even when you know what God's word says about something, there's going to be moments where the two choices that you presented with are equally valid, or at least on the surface, they look equally valid. This is where you need wisdom. Solomon is presented by with two women who are saying the very same thing. The dead child is yours. The living son is mine. And this is where wisdom is necessary. Some of you are going to have to make a decision about two jobs. Both are fine. They're not... Um, they're not illegitimate businesses or, or bad endeavors, but you, one is the wise choice, one is not. Uh, this is where buying a house, you know, one is a wise choice, one is not. That's where you need wisdom. And this is what Solomon acknowledges here in this passage. Let's go on and let's look at how he resolves it because it's brilliant. Then the king said, one says, this, son is, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her, and look at that word right there, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first one and by no means put him to death for she is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him. Notice this last line, to do justice. What do we need from our leaders? We need wisdom to do justice. We need wisdom from leaders to discern what looks good on the outside and how it is 
atrocious on the inside. A couple of years ago, when Black Lives Matter was making a big to-do over the death of George Floyd, and that thing just started to blow up in our culture, I remember I wrote a blog post about Black Lives Matter's origins, the organization's origins, and these people were not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. They wanted to undermine God's definition of the family. They called it the nuclear definition of the family. And I wrote a blog post and it upset. It ruffled a lot of feathers, a lot of feathers of people in my church. And I was taken aback by how many people were just so caught, so caught up in, in the emotions of the moment and the appeal of the movement, but they did not have the wisdom to see behind the movement. And now the stories have come out uh, how much money has been siphoned off the top and gone to the, the member, the leaders, the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization, billions of dollars. These people have multiple mansions across the country. Uh, they are now being found out for the shysters, financial shysters that they always were. And it was not a shock and it still is not a shock to me at all. Do you know why? Because the root of the tree determines the fruit of the tree. And if your root is against God's moral order and God's law and God's truth, your fruit will be against or counter to God's moral order, God's law, and God's truth. If your root is self-centeredness, your fruit will be self-centeredness. And so you cannot separate. This, is, this was my problem with the whole movement. You cannot separate. I don't care what anybody says. The root of undermining God's definition of the family, of redefi redefining man and male and female, of... Uh, redefining marriage, you cannot separate that root from the fruit of standing up for justice on behalf of black people. What they were internally, they became externally. And now the corruption and all of the news stories, and you can look them up for yourself, and all the news stories that have come out about the internal uh, corruption of the financial management of that organization are showing the root. That's all they're doing. They're just exposing the root for what it is. How did I get on this? <laughs> because, because wisdom is required when you have two options that look pure or when you have one option that looks pure, but behind it, behind it, there is darkness. There is de uh, demonic influence or there is just devastation. And, and wisdom is necessary to save yourself a whole boatload of pain. And that wisdom only comes from God. So that's the text. We've gone through it. Let's talk about it. So what are we going to talk about when, we come, when it comes to this passage? We're going to go to a key verse. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the key verse of this passage. It is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. When Solomon says in his prayer, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. I want you to notice something, and this is the key thought as we talk about this text. Solomon does not ask God for, uh, Solomon does not ask God to do things, but for the wisdom to do God's things. Let me say that a little bit clearer. Solomon does not ask for God to do things, but for the wisdom to do God's things. So many Christians want God to do things for them. God bless me. God help me. God fix me. God change me. Okay, fine. But God doesn't just want to do those things for you. He wants to do things through you. And he wants you, believe it or not, to live a life that is strong with your own strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, in your strength, to establish yourself. 
to do things that are wise, to do God's things. He wants to give you the wisdom that you need so that when life is hard, you're not overwhelmed and you make the impact necessary to affect other people's lives positively. And maybe some of you, you need to start changing your prayer language. You need to stop asking God to give you stuff or fix things and start asking God for wisdom to do the things that lead to the things that you need or lead to different activities that produce the things that you need. Maybe God doesn't need you. Maybe God doesn't want you to ask for the job, but to ask for the wisdom to do God things with the job or without the job, right? Maybe God doesn't want to give you that person as a spouse, but wants you to do singleness with wisdom now so that when you get married, that person, listen to this, is not a tangible answer to prayer, but an opportunity for you to serve them through the wisdom of God. Did you get that? Because it's so much better. It's so much better. We, sometimes we got to realize that when we ask God for things and he gives them to us, if there's any challenge to the thing that God gives us, we immediately will then blame God for giving us the thing in the first place. And a lot of people are like that. That's, I call that immature Christianity. God, I want you to do this for me. And then God does it. And you're like, oh man, it stinks. It's not as good as I thought it was. Oh, it takes work or it's requiring too much of me. Oh God, how could you do this for me? We go back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? The woman you gave me, God, or the serpent that you made, God. And instead of living with wisdom and making decisions to do God's things, we ask God to give us things and then blame God for the bad things that happened because of those things. Can I tell you that some of you, and single people pay attention real clearly here because some of you need a spouse and I understand you want a spouse or you're praying for a spouse and you're praying for the right person to come into your life. But, but if God just answers that prayer and they, be, and they come into your life and you get the thing that you asked for, a couple questions. Number one, will you ever talk to God again? Number two, will you see that person as the ultimate thing and not something through whom God is going to change you and sanctify you and make you holy? Or are you just going to look at it as an answer to prayer? Because if they are just an answer to prayer, then they become a possession. Then they become a thing that you own, that you keep, that you manage, that you control. But that's not how it works, friend. That's not how marriage works. You are not going to get a spouse for your benefit. You are going to get a spouse for the benefit of that person and the children that you will produce and the neighborhood in which you both will live. And the lineage that is far beyond you in grandparenthood and great-grandparenthood and the kids that you will never even see well beyond you hundreds of years from now. So that you start seeing instead these people or these things that you want in your life as objects of the answer to your prayer, but rather opportunities through whom you do God's things wisely to bless them and bless others so that you make an impact and you don't just get satiated with an answered prayer. I hope that makes sense. It's really a mind-shifting, mind-bending expression or, or lesson, and it takes a lifetime to learn that. <laughs> it takes a lifetime to learn that God is not really in the give you things business, but in the wisdom business so that you can do God's things with the things or people that he brings to your life. So the, the second thought that I had about this text is that Solomon does not ask 
um, I'm sorry, is that Solomon's wisdom is experienced or expressed in the presence of prostitutes. So what do we see here? We see the opportunity to serve is not with heads of state, is it? Solomon is the king of Israel. And for just the, the, the image that he would present to the world, right? Probably not going to bring in prostitutes to make a you know, visual. This is not an Instagram moment for King Solomon. This is not something he's going to post to social media. First day with God's wisdom. Looky here, two prostitutes come to me. No, he's in the dark place of the world. He's in the sinful place of the world. He's in, and, and mind you, he's in a place where sexual immorality is rampant. These are two prostitutes who live in the same house, so they're part of a harem. Murder has happened because one woman, uh, well, not technically murder. I guess you would say manslaughter because the woman laid on her son and killed him by accident. Stealing has happened because she swapped the baby, the dead baby for the live baby. And then lying has happened. One of these ladies is lying. Okay, here's another picture for wisdom. Wisdom is given to God's people to enter into the dark places of the world. Wisdom is not given to you necessarily to avoid the darkness, but to impact, impact the darkness, to change it, to bring light to the darkness. Some of you asked for wisdom and now you're stuck in a, a huge mess at the job. Some of you asked for wisdom and now God has suddenly blown up everything around you. You're like, whoa, this is not what I was asking for, but this is exactly what God gives wisdom for. He gives wisdom for the dark moments, the sinful moments, the, the disastrous moments, the deadly moments, the immoral moments, so that you can be a light through whom people see the glory of God. The third thought that I had was this. Solomon's wisdom saves lives as he gives himself to those in desperate need. And some of you have got to embrace this as well. You're not asking for wisdom to save lives. You're asking for wisdom to only improve your life. Now, don't get me wrong. Wisdom can improve your life, and it should. And God, I believe, is cool with that. He's, he's good with that. He wants you to live a flourishing life. But ultimately, if your life is only to serve you and your interests then all you're really doing is just practicing sanctified selfishness. You're not actually producing a sanctified heart through which other people can benefit. So that is my initial thoughts about this passage, and I'm going to close out this episode by talking about truth. And today's Tap Into Truth segment is a little bit longer than usual because there's so much that we can unearth here. So let's lean in to Tap Into Truth. Okay, Tap Into Truth. Number one, God does not wait for you to have wisdom to give you wisdom. Fundamentally, let's start there. You know that great passage in James chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And, and let's, just put, let's just put this line, let's just underline this for a second. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him, who's him, the him here is the person who lacks wisdom. So who should be talking to God? The person who lacks wisdom. Who's the one that God gives wisdom to? The person who lacks wisdom. And then it says, just to make sure that you're clear about that, that God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the person that lacks wisdom, if you are a person that does not have your act together, can I tell you, good news, God is interested in giving you what you need. This is why Jesus comes, because he knows we can't do it on ourselves. 
on our own. This is why Jesus loved the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the fornicators, because he knew that those people needed him. And what made them so attracted to him was that they knew that they needed him as well. The people that couldn't stand Jesus were the people that thought they had it all together. The people that thought they were put together and prim and proper, and there was no sin in them. They rejected Jesus. They asked for Jesus to be killed because they thought they could do it in themselves. So all I'm trying to tell you is, is the good news of the gospel is that God does not even wait for you to save yourself in order to give you salvation. You do not have to improve to get saved. You do not have to clean up your act to come to church. So many people tell me that all the time. I can't come to church. I'm a bad person. Exactly. That's why you should come to church. That's why you should be in the house of God. That's why you should pursue what God wants to give you and tell you and teach you. I love how Proverbs chapter one personifies wisdom as a woman. And I'm gonna give you this text because it's powerful. It's a woman who's literally begging people to come after her. It's a picture of how much God wants to lavish our life with wisdom. Look at it, Proverbs one, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And she says this, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in their scoffing? How and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. <laughs> Wisdom is begging to be known. Begging. I want you to have me. I want you to know me. So summing this up, wisdom is, wisdom is waiting for you to admit you need it, understand its purpose, and then implement its power on behalf of others. That is what wisdom is doing. It's waiting for you. As, as Solomon says, I'm a, I'm a young boy. I don't know how to govern this people. I need you. <laughs> I need what I don't know. And then understand his purpose. I need, to, I need to lead these people. I need to help. I need to bless this company. I need to bless this, this school. I need to bless this family. I need to raise these children. I need to love this husband. I need to serve this wife. I need to do these things that are beneficial for other people. And I can't do it in my own strength, in my own knowledge, my own in my own power. I need you, God. And that is what God is willing to do. So when is wisdom necessary? Let me unpack this because I alluded it to a little bit before, but I'm going to make it very clear now in the Tap into Truth segment. When is wisdom necessary? Three places when wisdom is necessary. Number one, at the moment of choice, when both choices, number two, when both choices seem the same, and number three, when the rules don't help. That's when you need wisdom. You need wisdom when you are given a choice between two things that seem like they're the same thing and there's no clarity there's no clear black and white. There's no clear wrong and right. That's when you need wisdom. So if you're wondering, <laughs> where do I need wisdom? Look, you, again, you don't need wisdom for the black and white issues of God. You don't need wisdom as to whether or not you should sleep around. <laughs> That's a big no, okay? You don't need wisdom as to whether you should spend all your money more than you make, right? That's a big no. You need wisdom when you're about to purchase one of two things and they're the same price and they both look good, but you need to know. The rules don't help you. You need to know what's behind the choice. That's what we are presented with here. This is how God uh, illustrates Solomon's wisdom in action. By the way, this is why the book of Proverbs is also so very confusing so often. If you ever read the book of Proverbs, there's this, there's this phrase in Proverbs 26, verse four, where it says, answer a fool, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then the very next phrase, the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. 
So which is it? Should we answer a fool not according to his folly or should we answer a fool according to his folly? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> this is why you need wisdom. That's why the book of Proverbs is not laws, but wise advice, wise guidance. So it will sometimes seem contradictory. There is a time to answer a fool according to his folly. There is a time not to answer a fool according to his folly. And what's the difference? How am I going to know? Wisdom. Wisdom where God speaks to your heart and shows you clarity behind what you see that looks on the surface as if it's the same thing. This is what Solomon faces in this passage. Both parties seem to be right. The rules don't help. Okay, so next up, how to get wisdom because that's what you came here for, right? And I hope you did. Number one, love God and do things that show it. That's what Solomon does. That's what he patterns for us here in verse three. Solomon loved the Lord. What did he do? He loved the Lord. He walked in the statutes of David, his father. He used to offer burnt offerings. He used to offer two, a thousand burnt offerings. So wisdom is for those who love God and do things that show it, even if they are like Solomon was kind of there, like kind of in obedience. They, they had their issues just like I do, just like you do. And so God is not waiting for you to purify yourself, to give you wisdom. He will speak to you. He will meet you right where you are. Number two, admit that you need wisdom. This is a bottom line baseline for getting it. Again, verse seven, I am a little child. I don't know how to come in, uh, go out or come in. So you have to admit, you have to humble yourself. This is why Jesus will unpack for us in the scriptures in Matthew. Unless you become like a child, humble yourself and become like a child, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to humble yourself if you're going to get God's wisdom in your life. You cannot believe that you know everything. You cannot believe that you have all the answers. God does. Number three, Understand wisdom's purposes. This is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 8. Your servant is in the midst of your great people. This is your people, a chosen people who is able to govern this great people of yours. So my asking for wisdom is so that God's people and God's glory and God's kingdom can come about. And then fourthly, leverage wisdom for any whom God brings into your life. So it's not about you being a celebrity. It's not about you being popular in the eyes of the important people. Look, that's what the world chases. The world chases importance in the eyes of the important people. God's people seek God. There is no more important being than God. There is no more glorious being than God. And yet God chose to pattern wise living and personified 100% purified wise living in his son who did not show up in Caesar's palace, but in a uh, cave in a manger in Bethlehem. That is wisdom personified. It is not seeking the important places of life, but seeking to serve whatever place of life you have. Where are you right now and who around you right now needs God's wisdom through you and from you? So that's how you get wisdom. Let's talk about what does wisdom look like? Um, this passage is kind of important to me. Because when it says here in verse 26, the woman whose son was alive said to the king because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. And the other said, no, he shall be neither yours nor mine, divide him. And then uh, the king said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death for she is the mother. What does wisdom look like? Very clear here in this passage. Wisdom is three things. It is selfless, it is serving, and it is giving. It is selfless, it is serving, it is giving. The woman was willing, understand this, because she also presents a picture of wisdom for us. She is willing to give up her child to save his life. Solomon is willing to serve these prostitutes, giving up his honor as king. And the people who are selfless, serving, and giving 
are the people that ultimately get the blessing. <laughs> Solomon doesn't just get riches and honor beyond any before him or after him, but this woman also gets her son back. Don't you see the picture that has been painted for us here about what it means to live a wise life? When you give up what you have, when you surrender, when you serve is where the blessing meets you, where where the benefit meets you is when you're willing to give up what God has given you for the sake of others around you. So let me summarize. What does wisdom look like? It looks like this. You are selfless in serving and giving so that others may live. Others may benefit. And where do we see this most perfectly displayed in Scripture but in the life of Jesus? He is the one who is totally selfless, served anyone and everyone who was brought before him and ultimately gave up everything so that we might live. Solomon, our true and better Solomon is Jesus Christ. And that is what's that that is what wisdom is for. That is what wisdom personifies. That is what we are here to do as God's people. James chapter 3 verse 17 sums this up well. It says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and that's an important word right there, and sincere. So all of these adjectives, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. These are attributes that befit the person of God who is approachable by anyone and will serve anywhere for God's glory to be made manifest everywhere understand how this passage teaches us. This is not teaching you how to get wisdom to make your life great. This is teaching you how to live with wisdom so that other people around you are benefited and God blesses and, and, and lifts up your life and puts your, your life in places, perhaps more prominent, perhaps less prominent, depending on the season, where you are now useful in the hand of God to bring people his goodness and his glory. Summing it up, finally, and I, I want to share this last thing. If you had your life together, you wouldn't need wisdom because God already knows you don't have your life together. He's always willing to answer your prayer for wisdom. So start asking today where you are with what you know. Then expect God to answer and use you where you are to help and serve others. That is the summation of 1 Kings chapter 3. That is what we are after, and I hope you are after too. And I didn't open in prayer, but I'd like to close in prayer if you would Pray with me according to, this, according to this passage. Father, where we are right now is because of you. We were born to the parents that we were born to. We were born at the time we were born, and we were given the ideas, thoughts, imaginations that we were given through the experiences of our life up to this moment according to your permissive will. We ultimately understand that you are in charge and you are sovereign over all the affairs of our lives. And you have us where you have us for this moment, for your purposes. Give us wisdom that we might live out your purposes where we are. That we might bless people with truth where we are. That we might serve whoever is in front of us. Not falling for the games of this culture of putting ourselves first or seeking the presence of important people. But help us, Lord, to love you and love others through the wisdom that you give us. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I pray and trust that this has helped and blessed your life. Guys, if you would do me a solid favor, like, share, subscribe to the channel. Get this content out farther for us. If you would also do me the solid of supporting the channel at the cash app there or at timhatchlive.com support. We've got many people who are supporting us on a monthly basis. I'm asking you to be one of them. And thank you for your support as we get this content to you every single week to benefit you, bless your life, and empower you to, win, to, to live with the wisdom that God gives you and ultimately, ultimately bless the people around you. Take care. Have a good night. We'll